Well, several years ago, I spoke at a church in Northern California. The next morning, one of the youth pastors from the church drove me to the Sacramento airport. We had plenty of time before the flight, and he asked me if I'd like a cup of coffee. I always do. So we exited the freeway, and we pulled into the McDonald's. Well, when the young man ordered his coffee, the clerk charged him $1.29. I placed the same order. That's when the clerk said, sir, that'll be 79 cents. I said, 79 cents? And then I pointed to the youth pastor. He placed the exact same order that I did, and you charged him $1.29. She said, yes, sir, but you get the senior discount. For the first time, it hit me. People are viewing me as a senior citizen. And this McDonald's clerk was no teenager. I mean, a teeny bopper considers anybody over 30 ready for the retirement home. But this gal was a 20-something young lady. She was mature enough to be able to read people. At first, her assessment caught me off guard. And then I bristled up. I even tried to correct her. I told her firmly, look, ma'am, I'm not a senior citizen. And I don't want any discount. I'm paying the same thing that everybody else pays. And I slapped my buck 29 down on the counter. I wasn't giving in to any customer profiling. And yet, despite my reluctance, no one can escape reality. I had been sized up. In the perfectly good eyes of another adult, I looked elderly. And that was a few years ago. I'm sure it's more evident today. I'm now 52 years young. My oldest son is three years south of 30. I've got a daughter who teaches high school, and they call my little girl Mrs. Keller. It seems like just yesterday I attended high school. Where did the time go? In the last year, I've had a kid graduate from college, another graduate from high school, then the high school grad went off to college, and last Saturday, the college grad got married. Kathy and and I are now official free birds. And the real mystery is how can I look so old while my lovely wife keeps drinking from the fountain of youth. That's what I yet have yet to figure out. Nobody has been offering Kathy a senior discount. People keep mistaking her for her 25-year-old daughter. And here's what really blows my mind. I have now been the pastor of a church for 30 years. Three decades. Hey, I was a pastor when Jimmy Carter was president. And that's no peanuts. Walter Cronkite was still hosting the evening news when I became a pastor. I was a pastor before John Lennon got shot. Since I became a pastor, the population of planet Earth has increased by 2.2 billion people. I'm just saying, I've been a pastor for a very long time now. Recently, it dawned on me that I've been a pastor for about as long as the Apostle Paul was a pastor when he wrote his first letter to Timothy. 
Thirty years had elapsed between Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and his letter to Timothy from a prison cell in Rome. Paul was this angry rabbi who hated Christians. That is, until Jesus knocked him off his high horse, literally, by a blinding light. And suddenly, in an instant, Paul realized that he had been wrong. All wrong. This Jesus, he was alive. He just knocked me off my horse. Paul had no other choice than to follow Jesus. And Paul followed him hard. He followed Jesus around the world three times, sowing the seeds of the gospel. Paul won continents for Christ. This one man shook up the Roman Empire. Everywhere he went, he inflamed enemies and he won converts. That is, until the men who feared him threw Paul in prison. And from that jail cell, 30 years after it had all started, Paul sat down and he put pen to parchment. And like a spiritual volcano, he erupted with thoughts and with wisdom. He spilt his heart onto the sheepskin. The same sheepskin that he would mail to his young protege, Timothy. Paul bubbled over with lessons that he had learned from 30 years of ministry. By worldly measures, he was a poor man. But Paul was in possession of a spiritual treasure chest of experience that he now feels that he needs to share. And you know, I feel a little like Paul. Not that I'm adding any books to the Bible, mind you. That no longer happens. And if it did, I wouldn't be one of the authors. Nor have I suffered or sacrificed like Paul. Unlike Paul, few miracles dot my resume. I've yet to win continents. Very few kings and emperors fear my influence. Yet like Paul, I have logged 30 years doing what God called me to do. And over the course of those years, I've learned a few valuable lessons as well. On October the 10th, 2010, our church is going to celebrate 30 years of God's faithfulness. I think that's pretty cool. 10, 10, 10. I, I, I went to South Gwinnett, and I still know that equals 30. We're planning a special day on 10, 10, 10. But over the next few months, I want to share with you some of what 30 years of ministry has taught me. And there's no better launching pad than Paul's letter to Timothy. Each week, we're going to break down Paul's words to Timothy, and where appropriate, I'm going to share with you a lesson that I've learned along the way. In fact, we're going to tackle this letter from several different angles. Today, we're going to strike at the heart. We're going to probe its theme verses, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This passage serves as the trunk from which the rest of the book sprouts. After a close examination of the tree trunk, we're going to then comb through the limbs and through the leaves. We're going to take a couple of weeks to survey the book, all six chapters. And then we're going to take a few more weeks. And we're going to pull out different threads that run through the book. We're going to try to fully explore Paul's letter to Timothy in the coming few months. Our text this morning is chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is the crux of the entire letter Here Paul communicates to Timothy, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, 
the pillar and ground of the truth. Now here is the theme of 1 Timothy. Like the life that Kathy and I have lived for the last 30 years. It's all about the church. It's about growing the church and building the church and feeding the church and caring for the church. It's how to conduct yourself in the house of God. Verse 16 even says that God has entrusted to the church the mysteries of godliness. That makes the church a really big deal. And since Timothy is a church leader, it's vital that he know how to conduct himself in God's household. You see, the church, any church, even this church, is like an automobile. When a car drives by, all you see is the car. That is, until you pop the hood. Get into the mechanics and you realize that a car is a lot of different systems, each operating separately, yet working together to keep the car running at optimum performance. There's the brake system and the cooling system and the ignition system and the electrical system and the steering system and the drivetrain system, etc., etc. And if any of these systems breaks down, the whole car is going to grind to a halt. And the same is true with the church. You know, we think, well, a church is a church is a church. No, that is until you pop the hood. Scrutinize the mechanics and you'll find that a church is made up of vital functions and principles and interactions. Different systems operate within a church. There's a system of authority and accountability. There's a way to teach sound doctrine and expose false teaching. Church life includes certain order and membership and relationships. There's a system for handling benevolence and showing grace. The church interfaces with the world as a witness and to God as a worshiper. Pop the hood on the church and you see what can keep us humming or what can cause us to sputter. A lot is involved in a successful church. And this is what we plan to do in the weeks to come. We're popping the hood on the church. We'll be conducting a course in church mechanics. And I want you to understand from the outset the strategic importance of this series. Not only for our church, but for other churches as well. You see, you never really know where the CDs and the podcasts are going to end up. I hope you'll be praying for me in these messages I'm trusting that God will use them to retether His people to His church. For I think we have finally reached the point where we can sound the alarm without a sounding alarmist. For there is indeed a crisis in today's Christianity. Put simply, too many believers have quit on the church misinformation or negative experiences or techno substitutes or a myriad of distractions or just plain neglect has warped our perspective. The Christian church is now irrelevant to many Christians. This past week, Sandra Parrish and WSB Radio ran a feature on the millennial generation's abandonment of Christianity and what the church is trying to do to reach them. The report quoted some recent research among American adults ages 18 to 29. 65% now rarely or ever attend 
a local church. Teenagers who went to church in high school now drop out of the church at a rate of 70%. And this isn't just a trend among young adults. I read elsewhere that 52% of Americans, that's 157 million people, claim to belong to a Protestant church. Yet on any given Sunday, only 28% of those Protestants attend. Between 1990 and 2004, the United States population expanded by 18%. In the same time frame, church attendance declined by 3%. Tom Rainer writes, The population of the United States is exploding, but the church is losing ground. We are in a steep state of decline. The American church is dying. Today, in post-Christian Europe, except for funerals, Only 5% of the population ever darkens the door of a church. Is America far behind? Now, I have no statistics to prove it, but over my 30 years as a pastor, I've seen these same disturbing trends. I grew up in church, and as a kid, I can remember that if you attended church three times a week, Sunday morning and then Sunday evening and then Wednesday night, you were considered a faithful church member. Now, granted, that might have been too much. You can't OD on church attendance. I mean, if you're always at church, you can neglect your family, and you can even neglect your witness to the world. But, you know, when I started pastoring, the shift was already evident. In 1980, if you were faithful to attend church once a week, you were considered a faithful church attender. In the 1990s, if you made it twice a month, you supported the church. By 2000, you were a faithful member if you made it in once a month. And today, if you make it for Christmas and Easter and toss in a 20 every now and then, you think you've done your duty. I drove past a church marquee this past week announcing that today, September the 12th, is National Back to Church Sunday. When I got home, I googled it. I was interested. And it's true. There's a website that's now generated one and a half million invitations encouraging Americans to come back to church. I hope it helps. But here's how my mind works. What's happened in the culture and among Christians that has caused the need for such a campaign? Why has the church fallen on hard times? Is the church itself to blame? Have we stayed faithful to God? Are we a healthy church? And here's the big question in my mind. Do Christians truly grasp the strategic role of the church? Today, Americans are up in arms because an Islamic mosque is to be built half a block from New York City's ground zero. But you know, if Christians were really concerned about the spread of Islam, rather than spend their money and effort trying to block the mosque, they would use those same resources to support their church. Islam is filling a spiritual void in the inner city. Immigrants cling to foreign religion because they've yet to been shown a compelling witness for Jesus. Ultimately, a strong church is what will stem the tide of Islam. You see, there's a spiritual battle raging in the world today, and God's only army is the church. Neglect the church, and you abandon the fight. Everything Paul is going to say to Timothy in this letter, 
about how to lead and how to conduct himself in the church of God, it hinges on these two verses here in chapter 3. In fact, earlier in this chapter, Paul is going to insist that the leaders in the church, they have top shelf character. In chapter 4, Timothy is commanded to diligently follow good doctrine, to model integrity in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. In chapter 5, Paul goes out of his way to make sure that the church's widows are treated fairly. You think, why, why make a big deal out of that? Aren't there bigger fish to fry? Bigger battles to fight? Apparently that's important too. Throughout the book, Timmy, Timothy is emboldened by Paul to oppose heretics and heresies. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 12, by the end of the letter, Paul goes militaristic. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Why the urgency in these matters? I mean, isn't this just church? A few folks seated in padded chairs, meeting a couple of times a week at best, and then just to talk and pray and sing? I mean, no one manufactures goods and services or buys and sells or enacts laws or entertains or produces revenue or trains for physical activity. So why does Paul write to Timothy as if the church is life and death? Because it is. Because it is. According to Paul's words to Timothy, the glory of God and the mystery of godliness have been entrusted to the church. Our passage this morning teaches us that the church is unlike anything in heaven or on earth. The church might look like a Ford Escort, but pop the hood and there's a monster 426 cubic inch Hemi with 425 horsepower that'll do 0 to 60 in 5.8 seconds. There's power under the hood. The church is a spiritual muscle car. The church has an engine of a 1970 Barracuda, but because we've never popped the hood, we putter around like we're driving a Geo. I want you to see how Paul describes the church. He tells us in these verses who we are, what we are, and why we are. Who we are. We are the house of God. What we are. We are the church of the living God. And why we are. We're the pillar and ground of the truth. Notice first, Paul tells us we're the house of God. Most translations render it the household of God. At the time, Paul and Timothy at the time of Paul and Timothy, churches didn't meet in temples or chapels or cathedrals, but in households. Christian places of worship didn't exist in pagan Rome. The New Century Version here translates the phrase, the family of God. I think that's the sense Paul is communicating. This is who we are. We're God's family. When we come together, it's like we're coming home. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 1, Paul tells Timothy... Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. In other words, the church needs to be one big happy family. 
We need to act and function like an extended family. And everybody is somebody in a family. I mean, come on. Every family has its weird uncle. And its crazy cousin. No matter. They're still invited to the family reunion. They're still a part of the family. It's been said families are like fudge. Mostly sweet with a few nuts. Here's the truth. You don't have to be perfect to be in a family. You can have your strangeness and still be loved. You can cop an attitude and we'll love you through it. In fact, beware of churches where everybody looks perfect. Plastic makes perfect. But plastic isn't real or authentic or genuine. Hey, the church is God's family. And the family of God is no more like the Huxtables than the family that lives in your house. We're not perfect. Family life gets messy. Oh, we grow, but then we fail. We, we're up, and then we fall. Yet in the good times and in the bad times, a family is still a family. A church sticks together because we're God's family. Understand, a church is a family, not a business. There is a business side to the church. Money has to be reported. It has to be managed properly. But when a church functions like a business, it heads down the wrong track. For example, in a business, the customer is always right. In fact, a business is all about pleasing the customer. Go to Burger King and you can have it your way. But in a church, the customer is always evil. We are, you are, we are, I am. We're all sinners. We're evil. And we don't need it our way. We need to repent and submit to God's way. In the church, the person we aim to please is God, not the customer. Walk into a business and people will be there to wait on you. You're encouraged to shop for what suits your needs or or just sit back and be entertained. You're there to be served, not serve. Shop at the Gap and nobody's going to ask you to grab a broom or a vacuum and help tidy up the place. In fact, you don't even have to put away the clothes you try on. You leave them there for somebody else to put up. Greeters at Walmart never ask you for a donation. The Home Depot doesn't challenge you to help them carry out their mission. You see, in a business, you're not saddled with responsibilities, but not so in a family. As a family member, you're not just a consumer, you're a contributor. In a family, everyone knows that with privilege comes responsibility. you got chores to do in a family. And notice, chore rhymes with bore. Have you ever noticed that? Chores are not designed to be fun and thrilling and the fulfillment of your hidden potential. Oh, here's a broom, son. Discover the fulfillment of your hidden potential. You mow the grass because it needs to be mowed. That's what happens in a family. You pay your rent because it comes due. You show up for dinner because you're hungry and you want to eat. And this is how it works in the church. Jesus serves us, so we should serve each other. You tithe your money because the tithe belongs to God and not you. 
You come to the Bible study because you need to eat. And because it's just rude for me to cook up a meal and you not bother to show up. This is what it's like to be a part of the family. But when you're lonely, and when you're wounded, and when you need love, you don't visit the discount superstore, do you? You run home. You seek out your family. And the church is God's family. If you're shopping around this morning for a church, you're going about it all wrong. You pray and you ask God to call you to a church family. To reveal to you where He wants you to be involved. Even if a few of your needs might go unmet. You shed the consumer mentality. For better, for worse, in sickness and in health, you stay committed to that family. And in the end, you find that being a part of a family is far more rewarding than being a member at Costco. This is who we are. We're God's family. But listen to to what we are. We're told that we're the church of the living God. Notice Paul differentiates the Christian God as the living God in contrast to the world's other so-called gods. All other gods are idols. They don't exist. They're powerless dead gods. Muslims make pilgrimage to Muhammad's grave. It's located in Medina, Saudi Arabia. It's a grave though. It's a tomb. Buddha's tooth lies in a temple in Sri Lanka. The rest of his body apparently was cremated. Confucius is buried in a large Chinese cemetery. You know, Jesus also had a tomb. It's in a garden north of Jerusalem. But the tomb of Jesus was just a timeshare. He only borrowed it for the weekend. Today, his tomb is empty. For Jesus is risen. That makes Jesus the one and only living God. And since we too are alive in Christ, then we are the church of the living God. When you repent of your sin and when you put your trust in Jesus, God sends His Spirit to inflate yours with love and with life and with power and with pardon and with presence and with peace. Suddenly you're born again. You're alive with the life of the risen Christ. You know, I almost hesitated earlier in referring to the church as a car. It's really a flawed analogy. For the church is not a machine. It is alive. It is an animate object. As a church, we're more than an organization. We're a living organism. You see, you join an organization by signing a card or by taking an oath. It's something that you do. But that's not what it takes to join the family of God. You're born into a family. Something happens to you. God acts. Dr. God takes the two paddles, one of repentance and one of faith, and He puts it on your heart and He shocks you back to life. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you're born again. And that's how you become a part of the church. And if you were raised or if you've attended southern churches for a while, you need to pay attention to this. Because you can walk an aisle a thousand times and respond to an altar call a thousand times. You can be a charter member of the first church and pay your dues and sport a certificate and still fry on the grill in hell. 
You can be religious, belong to a religious group, and still be dead in your sin. The true church is alive. It inhales and exhales the breath of God. The true church has a pulse. Put a stethoscope to our chest and you will hear the heartbeat of God. The Greek term translated church is ekklesia. It refers to a called out group. You see, the church is an assembly of people who were called out of the world, called to new life in Christ, and called to live that life together. This is why the church is not just a building or a club or a theater or an event on Sundays. It consists of people who've been awakened, who have been quickened, as the old King James puts it, by God's Spirit. A Christian is alive to God and alive to other believers around him. A.W. Tozer once observed, 100 religious persons knit together into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life. The church is a beautiful community of believers made alive by God's Spirit, infused with new life and new loves and new powers and new passions. Well, Paul tells us who we are. We're God's family. And then he tells us what we are. We are alive in Christ, the church of the living God. And then finally he tells us why we are. We are the pillar and the ground of the truth. Understand, the church is not a blog where you type in your opinion and then wait for other people to post their reactions. The church isn't a talk show where the pastor stirs the pot and then he lets the people who agree with him chime in. No, the church is far more important and far more strategic. Paul calls it the pillar and ground of the truth. I mean, where else can folks discover God's truth today? Certainly not the media or the public schools or the government. The church alone is what holds together the last vestiges of our Christian worldview. You see, God gives, uh, Paul gives us here in this passage wonderful imagery. He says, God's truth is a house. Live in this house. Live in the truth of God. And oh my, it will provide you warmth and safety and comfort and shelter and protection. Abide in God's truth and you'll find opportunities for relationship and and happiness and peace. But it's the church that supports this house of truth. The church is the footer on which God's truth sits. It's the posts holding up the roof of God's truth. The church is the environment where God's truth is best understood. You see, you can't accurately interpret God's truth outside of the church. Biblical doctrines are best understood in the context of practical relationships with other believers. Scripture was never intended to be dissected by theologians sitting alone in an ivory tower. It's to be interpreted by born-again believers living together in meaningful relationships, slugging it out with a hostile world. This is why our Through the Bible groups represent such a hopeful opportunity for spiritual growth. You can hear the word. You can get the ideas and thoughts of other believers, the spirit working through them. And then then you can apply it all to your life, 
together with your friends and family. Once there was a lady, a lonely elderly lady, who bought a parrot to keep her company. She figured that if she had a pet parrot, she'd always have someone to talk to. But after bringing the bird home from the pet store, she couldn't get the bird to speak. She went back to the pet store and she complained to the manager. He told her, he said, well, does the parrot have a mirror in his cage? Parrots love mirrors. So she bought a mirror, took it home, put it in the cage, but the bird still wouldn't talk. The next day, she complained again to the pet store owner. This time he asked, does your parrot have a ladder? Parrots love those little ladders, you know. And a happy parrot is a talkative parrot. So she tried a ladder. Still not a peep from the parrot. Well, on her third visit to the pet store, the owner suggested, have you tried a swing? Parrots love swinging. Just get that little bird swinging and he'll talk up a storm. So she bought a swing. Well, two days later, the woman returned to the pet store and the owner asked her about her parrot. He was shocked to hear that the bird had died. It was dead. He asked the woman, did your parrot ever say a word? She replied, yes. Just before he died, in a very soft, faint, weak little whisper, my parrot asked me, don't they sell any food at that pet store? Well, you see, here's a parody of the popular trends in today's church. Leaders think that they can bring people back to the church with mirrors and with ladders and with swings. Oh, look into the mirror of introspection. Self-help, pop psychology replaces scripture. Ladders and rung by rung, how-to formulas. This has replaced faith. Swinging entertainment. This has replaced spiritual substance. People are like the parrot today. They're exploring their inner self or they're climbing the rungs of some man-made system or they're swinging on an emotional roller coaster all the while they're dying for lack of food. God's Word, the Bible. Why does the church exist? We are the pillar and the ground of the truth. We are God's one watering hole in a desert of dryness. Now, now see, here's how our modern society thinks. We like the superstores and the mega malls more than the mom and pops. Why? Because we're impressed with bigger and better. And we even like that in our church and in our religion. We like efficiency and predictability even in religion. Why? Because it means we're still in control. And as long as we're surrounded by noises, lots of noises... We don't have to bother with those nagging words of truth. And yet up against this backdrop, the church of Jesus Christ stands out. For in our corporate society, the church offers us a chance at family and community. And it teaches us real commitment. The church gives us a taste of God's life, even in the midst of our automated world. And oh, how we long for life. And the church pierces the information overload with the clarion call of God's truth. And oh, how we need truth today, not just more noise. 
I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said years ago. It's when the church is absolutely different from the world that she invariably attracts it. Perhaps that's the real key to a successful Back to Church Sunday. Well, over the next few months, we'll be popping the hood on the church and we'll be learning more of why the church is the most important entity on earth. And I hope you'll allow God's Spirit and God's Word to deepen your understanding of the church, to heighten your appreciation of the church, and to intensify your commitment to the church. In Jesus' name, amen.